Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. And I'm Eric Lures. It is March 8th, 2018, and on this week's show, how to perfect your slow camera moves, our Fun Facts Awards season recap, and a preview of America's coolest film festival, South by Southwest. Plus, as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hi out there, we are coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of another snowstorm. Ah, wah, wah. We are here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. And our first big announcement is that today... Thursday is our first day in our new office at B Electric Studios in Bushwick. So as mentioned previously, we've moved from downtown Brooklyn. Um, And if you are looking for office space in Brooklyn, our old space is still looking to fill our slots. So um, please write us at editor at nofilmschool.com if you're looking for some cool, affordable, wacky downtown Brooklyn office space. And on to the show. Happy National Women's Day. And on that note, I'll kick off the headlines with two words. Inclusion Rider. No, that's not my new band, although I'm thinking about starting it. In case you missed it, those are the two words Frances McDormand uttered when she dropped the mic at the end of her Oscars acceptance speech for Best Actress in a Leading Role, which of course launched a series of tweets and articles about what is an inclusion rider. So, an inclusion rider is a clause that an actor can put in their contract that requires cast and crew on a film to meet certain levels of diversity. This can play out in a lot of different ways for the exact terms, and we can debate its merits, but I, for one, am excited that people are talking about it because we've been talking on the show about, like, what are some concrete ways to act out on the Me Too and Oscars So White stuff on our sets. And this is one example of actors taking some practical steps toward real action instead of just lip service. So Eric actually formally covered the Oscars for us, and he will uh, let us know what went down. Uh, yeah, so I quickly, uh, even during the show, was putting together a couple of stats and just checking them out again to verify that these are correct. Uh, a couple of really noteworthy things, at least for like awards show geeks, uh, took place. Uh, I don't know any of those. I know. Well, so there's been a lot of talk about how you know you have to open a film later in the year to kind of stay fresh in voters' minds. Um, open in December, open closer to the holidays. And while that is has been true in the past, it actually has been 13 years since a Best Picture winner had opened in theaters in December. And that streak was broken this year, The Shape of Water, officially. I went back, I checked on Box Office Mojo, opened December 1st in New York. So it broke the streak, which was uh, Million Dollar Baby was the last film to win Best Picture in, in a December. Uh, I mean, we had Crash open in May of 2005, for example. Um, also, this was something, according to Vox, which if this is... You know, this is pretty incredible. Uh, the Shape of Water became only the second movie with a credited woman screenwriter to win Best Picture since World War II. Uh, I, I was reading all about this. This seems correct. I was as shocked by the stat. Uh, the only other film since World War II to win with a women screenwriter was Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Other cool stats include Jordan Peele becoming the first African-American to win in the category of Best Original Screenplay. Uh, James Ivory, who won Best Adapted Screenplay for Call Me By Your Name, upon at the age of, I'm going to say it, James, 89 years old, uh, became the oldest ever winner in any Oscar category. Sam Rockwell's Best Supporting Actor win for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, makes him the fifth Supporting Actor winner in a row to win on his very first nomination. 
which means maybe I have a chance next year. Um, <laughs> Netflix won its first Feature Academy Award for the documentary Icarus. And also, for our readers, Roger Deakins, he did win on his 14th nomination. Deakins! And he didn't have to wait as long as first-time nominee and first-time winner Kobe Bryant. Those were some very fun facts at Eric Lures with a K. Thank you so much. And that's an L-U-E-R-S. <laughs> I thought, you know, I watched the show, of course, uh, rabidly, and I have to say, I, I didn't know what to expect because of all the tumult in the industry this year, and I didn't know if it would be kind of like dark and, you know, if the speeches would be really heavy, but I was so pleasantly surprised by the kind of real positivity in the room, like maybe people are kind of feeling the change, and it didn't feel like this kind of hokey, fake, aren't we all wonderful, you know, self-celebration. There was actually a lot of just like positive, like focus on dreams and on us as a larger filmmaking community, Um, like the Silent Child winners who won for Best Short um, said they worked on their short for 12 years. Greta Gerwig insisted that we all go out and make our movies. Jordan Peele said he stopped writing Get Out about 20 times because he thought it was impossible, which I'm sure we can all relate to. Guillermo del Toro said something about how, like, everyone who's dreaming of using fantasy to tell real stories, you can do it. You know, so there was just all this kind of positive pro-filmmaker, pro-hey-everybody-let's-make-movies kind of thing rather than a very exclusive feeling about it. Yeah. And my only pet beef is that if we do go back and watch those speeches years down the line, we are going to wonder why some of them are mentioning a jet ski. Uh, that was it, so dumb. You know, it's just we're not going to have the context uh, the further we get away from the actual ceremony. So that'll just be a little strange uh, five to ten years down the line. Why Jordan Peele starts his speech talking about not being able to win a jet ski. But, you know, other than that, uh, Frances McDormand, like you mentioned, uh, having the women stand up for her speech um, – there were only six women winners, unfortunately. But she had she asked all the female nominees. 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 To stand okay, yeah, that made it a little bit better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was that was a hot moment, I gotta say. So one name that was conspicuously absent from the speeches, and I'm gonna say it now, was Harvey Weinstein. So a quick update on the fate of the Weinstein company. If you've been following this at all, you know that it has been a total roller coaster. Most recently, a couple of days before the Oscars, it was announced that a $500 million deal to buy the company, led by Maria Contreras' suite, had finally been reached. Then, a couple of days after the Oscars, the deal fell through completely. And now, Deadline reports that the company is likely to move into bankruptcy by next week. They're going to follow, you know, kind of the orderly bankruptcy procedure that MGM went through several years ago because there's no shortage of bidders that want, of course, the Weinstein Company's assets. Contreras Sweet and her partners will likely be among those bidding, but there's like a lot of questions up in the air. What happens to the 150 employees whose jobs would have been saved in a buyout? Also, how are there still 150 employees working for the Weinstein Company? It'll be really interesting to see how this plays out and where the company's 277 film titles end up. And rounding out Oscars coverage with one more fun fact. Uh, a lot of you all are making shorts, so you'll be happy to hear this note from journalist Mark Harris on Twitter. He was saying that given the declining fortunes for art house movies, the theatrical release of the Oscar shorts is a bigger hit every year. You know how, like, right around the Oscars time, you can go see the Oscar-nominated shorts uh, in docs and animated etc like in the theaters so that that was started 10 years ago and the first year it grossed about two hundred thousand dollars not so much but this year uh they had already grossed 3.3 million dollars by the time of the ceremony so 
those of you making shorts, that's pretty encouraging. Of course, there was another award ceremony last weekend that was a little more our speed. It was held in a tent on the beach and celebrating our people. It was the Film Independent Spirit Awards. Actually, that reminds me of the like only Jimmy Kimmel joke that I laughed at at the Oscars when he said something to the effect of, For those of you who say we're a bunch of -of out-of-touch Hollywood elites, I'll have you know that each of the 45 million Swarovski crystals on the stage tonight represents humility. (laughs) And I don't... (laughs) Oh, man, I pulled an Emily. really loved it. You have a good joke. Well, I don't know if you guys saw it, but that stage literally was encrusted with crystals. It was just obnoxious. Um, At the Andy Spirits, however, there were zero crystals, apparently a very slippery floor... And lots of good vibes. And in addition to the presence of Get Out winning Best Feature and Best Director, uh, I just wanted to quickly mention a few other awards given out uh, that are worth noting for our listeners. Matt Spicer's Ingrid Goes West won Best First Feature, which is a really fun and then incredibly dark and kind of creepy movie about social media and our obsession with celebrity culture. Um, the Happy for him is a very good film that opened uh, last summer and premiered at Sundance 2017. Other nominees in that category included Menasha, Olusi, Patty Cakes, and Columbus. Uh, Antonio Mendez Esparza's Life and Nothing More, which premiered at TIFF last September, won the John Cassavetes Award. It awards a best feature made under $500,000. Uh, a lot of people always wonder how do you qualify, what qualifies for a Spirit Award? Nomination, it's usually a $20 million cap, but the Cassavetes Awards goes way be, uh, below that for $500,000. Um, best First Screenplay was awarded to Emily V. Gordon and Camille Nanjani for their screenplay of The Big Sick, Woo-hoo. which was an Oscar nominee the following night. And um, this is pretty interesting. A new award slash cash prize was awarded for the first time. It was called the Bonnie Award, named after Bonnie Tiberzi Caputo, who joined American Airlines in 1973 at age 24. She became the first U.S. female pilot to fly for a major U.S. airline. This inaugural award recognizes a mid-career female director with a $50,000 unrestricted grant, which is sponsored by American Airlines. Uh, which is pretty neat. That's kind of a very specific uh, goal in mind. And the prize was awarded to Chloe Zhao, whose film The Writer will be released in theaters next month, courtesy of Sony Pictures Classics. Yeah, we actually have interviews with Ingrid Goes West and The Writer up on the site, so I will link to those in the podcast post. Overall, I would say it was a pretty satisfying award season, and I'm glad it is done. So now that it's in the can, it's time to move on to spring festivals, which is our next kind of big wave of stuff. And we're headed to one of our favorites uh, actually tomorrow, provided the weather holds up, and that is South by Southwest. So a couple of the stats about this year's fest. During the nine days of the festival, 132 features will be shown. Uh, the full lineup includes 44 films from first-time filmmakers, 86 world premieres, 11 North American premieres, and five U.S. premieres. And these were selected from... 2,458 feature-length submissions, with a total of 8,160 films submitted this year. And for comparison's sake, on the feature front, Sundance in 2018 had 110 films, and those were selected from 3,901 submissions. So another 1,400 submissions but um, there is some overlap in the festival favorites section, for example, at South by as well. Actually, also like Sundance, this year at South by Southwest, there will be a brand new indie episodic section. So everybody's catching on to that wave. Um, And as you know from our coverage in years past, South by Southwest also has 
like hundreds, literally hundreds of panels and events all over Austin. It's almost impossible to keep track of, but we will try to keep you posted. Haha, <laughs> pun intended, with lots of posts from the festival. We'll be attending films, we'll be attending panels, um, and we will uh, put lots of articles up as well as dedicate next week's entire show to South by Southwest. And the opening night film will be John Krasinski's creepy horror tale, A Quiet Place, starring his wife, Emily Blunt, before being released in theaters on April 6th, courtesy of Paramount Pictures. Uh, It's from Michael Bay's Platinum Dunes production company, which specializes in genre films and for a number of years, about a decade or so ago, uh, specialized in remakes of beloved horror films like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Nightmare on Elm Street. When those remakes came out, they were under this Platinum Dunes uh, production label. So it's kind of interesting to see them working with John Krasinski now. Who knows? You know, it's a different uh, take, different step. Um, We'll look forward to checking that out soon. Well, I know we don't do a lot of celebrity goss on the show, but I have to say that John Krasinski and Emily Blunt are such a goddamn adorable couple. I only recently learned they were together, and I saw this whole little video about how they met, and they had crushes on each other, and man, I hope they work it out. You had, know, Had they been in a movie before, or had did they just meet at a party? Or I think I they, can... yeah, they just met. Gosh. Yeah. So yeah, among this huge lineup, I'm curious what you guys are most looking forward to. Well, I'll start, since I haven't said anything yet today. Hi, John. Hey. Uh, there's a lot to be excited about for sci-fi horror film nerds this year, and really every year at South by Southwest. They really have a penance for weird genre films that you don't get to see anywhere else, and some that you do get to see further along down the road, like uh, Quiet Place and Hereditary. With that in mind, I had about 25 films on my initial targets list for films I'd like to see, and that was obviously way, way too many. So among those were films like Prospect, which is a low-budget sci-fi about moon miners, and A Field Guide to Evil, which is a European anthology of horror shorts based on fables and myths featuring work from the directors of Goodnight Mommy and The Lore, which are two really interesting horror or like fantastical movies that we've seen at festivals in the past couple years. But all that being said, my most anticipated film this year at South By has nothing to do with science fiction or horror. Instead, it's got to be the feature-length version of Jim Cummings' masterful short, Thunder Road. If you haven't seen a Sundance award-winning original, stop listening to this podcast, go to Vimeo, and watch it right now, because it is a masterclass on how to do a short. One location, one actor, one monologue, and pretty much just one take. The setup is essentially as simple as it comes, and the real strength of the short comes from the writing and performance, each of which pervade effortlessly from Cummings, who acts as the protagonist to his story as well as the writer and director. It's sad and hilarious and puts you through a whole range of emotional extremes within its mere 10-minute runtime. All we see is a scene in which an eccentric police officer eulogizes his mother by singing a selection from Bruce Springsteen, and now Cummings has expanded that short into a feature— I'm personally really interested to see how he takes his one scene short and extends it into a full-length story because the world of the short seems so expertly contained. In any case, I have to think that Cummings had a plan to make this feature all along and isn't just riding a wave of success. The story follows the same officer as he deals with the death of his mother and deals also with the hardships of being a father. We'll have him and members of the crew that worked on both projects as guests on the podcast while we're down in Austin to talk about their experience in transitioning a short into a feature. So it should be a good one. That sounds really interesting. So I will take up your sci-fi mantle because there really are a ton of sci-fi this year. I think even more than normal. I'm excited about one called Fast Color by Julia Hart. 
I'd say at least four of my top 10 favorite films are sci-fi, but they're also all directed by men. So now with Ava DuVernay's A Wrinkle in Time hitting theaters this week and Julia Hart's movie premiering at South by Southwest, there's some new blood coming into the genre. So Fast Color is Hart's second feature, and it's about a woman named Ruth who has unspecified, quote unquote, extraordinary abilities, who can no longer control said abilities and is on the run from a group who wants to exploit this. She ends up back at her childhood home, and apparently a family drama ensues in the midst of this science fiction narrative. So I don't know too much about the film, but a good sign for it is that it has a great team behind it. It's produced and co-written by Hart's husband, who happens to be Jordan Horowitz, who produced La La Land. And it's shot by Michael, F- I'm not sure how to say his name, but I think it's Fimonyari, who shot Rai Russo Young's Before I Fall, which looked so good that I titled my article about it, Achieving Hollywood-Level Visuals with an Indie Budget. So, Fast Color seems promising. I'll let you know. My most anticipated is probably The Ranger, which is in the Midnight section, which is from first-time feature director Jen Wexler, who is a longtime producer at Glass Eye Picks. Uh, Jen was just at the Spirit Awards last Saturday for producing Most Beautiful Island, which was nominated for Best First Feature, and won the Narrative Competition Prize at South by Southwest last year. She also produced Like Me, which was at the fest last year as well, and is a film we covered on the site a few weeks ago for its VOD release. Uh, I've been following The Ranger from afar-ish as it participated in many film development and financing markets over the past two years that I've attended, and I've seen concept trailers and early artwork and things like that, and I'm excited to see the full film on the big screen. Uh, The film is based on a thesis script by her University of the Arts, which is in Philadelphia's uh, fellow classmate, and now that she's learned how to make movies herself, she said she was ready to make this one as her feature. Uh, The festival poster dropped today with the tagline, Each year, millions visit our national parks. Not everyone gets to leave. Which actually sounds kind of nice. Uh, you know, I mean, why would you want to leave uh, Yellowstone? Um, but it's it's a horror movie, kind of. Uh, features like rock punk kids versus these local rangers in a slasher film. Is it like an action adventure? I'm not, I'm not totally sure. Yogi Bear. Yogi Bear may show up as well. He won't let you leave. Uh, Wexler is quoted as saying that there should already be some 1980s movie about punks that go up against a park ranger. Uh, so I always love the concept. Uh, comparisons to Jeremy Saulnier's Green Room seem kind of warranted here, but we'll see, and I will see as well next week. And now here's Charles Hayne with the Gear News for this week. Hey, everybody. Thanks, John. Uh, so Gear News this week is all about revisions. Uh, but that's good because in the software industry, they're all about, like, you just keep iterating. And it seems like a lot of the gear this week are iterations that offer some exciting improvements. So the first thing up is Tilta has updated their gravity stabilizer to version 2 from G1 to G2. We had a little hands-on time last year with the G1 and came away pretty impressed. The key thing that Tilta offers above its competitors is a lot of outlets for easy adaptability. So they have two of those rosette mounts that allow you to put on like an external monitor or a wireless unit. They have power out at a price point that a lot of their competitors don't have power out if you want to power that monitor or like wireless follow focus. And they also have their own very affordable like $1,200 wireless follow focus rig. So they have a lot of options at a very good price point. So with the new G2, all of that is still there. And in fact, all of the original accessories from the G1 still work with the G2, but they've expanded the load size by changing the way the tilt motor is mounted. So an angled tilt motor, which puts the tilt motor instead of being right behind the camera, like down below, 
is something that's like sort of spreading throughout the gimbal industry. I think I can started it, but I might have that wrong. And if I am wrong, I'm sure the real manufacturer will tell me on Twitter. Um, but someone else started it, and now everybody is doing it. And they've done that with the G2. They've moved it below, which means if you have a little camera, it's easier to see the screen. But it also means if you have a bigger camera, it's easier to mount your bigger camera because you can mount a slightly longer camera because the motor is no longer directly in the way. The G2X takes this even further and designed for even larger bodies. They're using a Canon C-Line camera in all the press photos. Probably still not big enough to fly like a full-on Alexa, but of course you wouldn't want to do that one-handed anyway. This is a pretty welcome upgrade. It's a whole lot of nice improvements on a stabilizer that a lot of people liked for the price. However, Tilta have kept their weird like pistol grip handle, which is sort of like a gun, and uh, it's sort of an odd choice that doesn't quite fit. So here's hoping G3 will continue to refine it and maybe have something that feels a little less like a gun um, for the handle. Maybe they're marketing it to conservators. Uh, oops. <laughs> conservators are really into stabilizing their paintings and making sure their documents <laughs> yeah. stay very stable. Oh, man. That's what happens when I try to make a joke about politics. Um, yeah. I'm just going to shut up now. Go ahead, Charles. What else is next? <laughs> or or, or I'm going to I'm gonna go the other way because I actually used to be a gun owner and I believe that oh, we yeah. should. Yeah, I used to have a rifle. Um, I'm not anti-gun ownership, although no one should own an AR-15. Come on, let's be real. Um, Tilta, if you're going to have guns, let us choose a couple guns. Right now you've got like a Colt 45 with like a thing. Let us have a pearl handle grip. Let us have like a, like a Western style thing. Like mix it up a little bit. It's feeling a little bit like uh, it's just feeling a little stayed there. Give us like a little interchangeable plates, something like that. And actually, as a former gun owner, I would actually say we could all do without guns. <laughs> Moving right along before the NRA gets in on this podcast. In another update, Blindspot have updated their Scorpion lights to V2. Blindspot are probably best known for their ultra-bright tile lights, which are great on a camera or on a stand. They have a really cool folding plastic softbox that I really loved. Um, but their first original product was the Scorpion, which is like a gooseneck LED that shows up on all sorts of big productions and was actually in camera in front of the lens, had, had its own glamour close-up in the Netflix show Altered Carbon, where it was a prop and it was like a future light for uh, a conservator looking at things on their table. So it's all about conservators looking using film tools on this podcast. So with version 2, Tilta has focused on getting more light volume out of the units while using less power, which is always great. It means if they're on battery, they're going to last even longer. But they've also focused on upping color accuracy, getting up to 94 TLCI. Now, all those objective measurements of color accuracy are weird, and none of them are really great, and like CRI and TLCI... But it's always nice when you see the number in the ad because it lets you know that they're focusing on that as a thing. It's a manufacturer saying, we're paying attention to color, and we think we're getting in a place where we can make nice skin tones. So like 94 versus 96, I've had beautiful light out of a 92, like CRI light. I've had 99 CRIs that I thought looked weird. The number is less important than it is as an indicator that uh, Blindspot's really focusing on color accuracy with this revision. They also do a really nice thing at Blindspot where they really focus on, like, very easy to use, easy to pack up, easy to move around kits. Like, they're very focused on, like, fast production where you've got to roll up quickly and everything's well organized. And um, so as the film industry increasingly goes LED, uh, the Scorpion is a great little unit to look at. Last up, yet another revision, but is a really good one to remember, is that Abel Cine has updated their field of view calculator 
with Alexa LF information. So the online field of view calculator from AbleCine is a website where you can go and you can check out, oh, will this lens cover this sensor? This was not something we used to care a lot about. You sh if you shot 35mm or if you shot 16mm, you rented the right lenses that fit and you were all good. And if you weren't, the rental house would totally warn you. However, sensor sizes are going crazy in all directions, getting bigger. Some are staying the same height and getting wider. A couple are getting taller. So there's all these full frame and large format and VistaVision sizes, none of which are the same between manufacturers. And honestly, a lot more rentals are happening peer to peer. You're going on KitSplit, you're going on ShareGrid, you're going on LensRentals.com, and you're finding stuff so that like person at the rental house who used to be like, hey, that lens isn't going to cover that thing. Or like that one time at Claremont, I tried to rent a lens, and who was the guy at Claremont who's like, dude, you can't rent this lens. It's going to crack the mirror in your camera because the, the back of it sticks out too much. That level of service is no longer a thing. Not to say you don't get great experiences out of Kit, KitSplit and ShareGrid. Like in the last couple of weeks, I've had like hour-long conversations with people I was like renting from or to. It's a really great social network. But that level of a rental house looking out for you is not really there. So it's a really good idea to check on the Able Cine Field of View calculator to be like, hey, will this lens I'm renting actually cover the sensor I'm using it with? It is a really helpful tool. It's another way that rental houses can keep themselves like every time you use it, you're going to remember Able exists and it's going to be more likely you rent from them. So it's like really smart marketing. It's that kind of marketing where they give away for free helpful information, uh, which is the kind of marketing we're a big fan of. And uh, – it's a really great tool, and being updated with all the Alexa LF information is great. We actually did a little shooting test here comparing some of the full-frame Cine Primes for the Alexa LF. That, so be on the lookout sometime in the next couple of weeks. All right. Well, let's move on to Ask No Film School. How about it? All right. So Adam Dudek asks, I'm wondering how I can somehow recreate the camera movement similar to the one used in this video from Joji. Adam then shares a link to a video that's all one shot, and it's like a dude in a pool like an empty swimming pool and like, is that a gorilla outfit? It's like a red gorilla outfit. But the key is that it's like this slow moving, drifting three minute take where it's all in one. Is Joji a person or is it like a? I think it's a band. Com oh, it's a band? Joji? Okay. J-O-J-I, I Okay, think. not J-O-E-G. No. Gotcha. No, J-O-J-I. <laughs> or the band's like, called Gemans and the song is Joji. I, I couldn't tell. I feel like Joji is like, the prototypical name for someone on the No Film School boards. Yeah, I was actually going to say, no, Joe G probably has, like, a YouTube channel yeah. about, like, grip stuff. Um, if you are Joe G, totally <laughs> let us know, and uh, we will totally Interview answer, you. Yeah, and answer your next, next Ask No Film you've, School You've got question. a very interesting name. Um, so, uh, Mr. Dudek continues, from the behind-the-scenes photos, I see they're using a Steadicam. I own an A7S II and a Ronin M. I thought I might run out an easy rig, but I guess that setup will t be too light. Same thing goes for a Steadicam. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Should I rent a dolly? Could you suggest a model? Um, so, Adam, this is a great question specifically because it requests uh, it addresses one of the hardest parts of filmmaking, which is making people understand how hard it is to do a slow creeping dolly. The number of times I've worked with directors who are like, yeah, I want to do this like three-minute dolly shot, and we'll just do it on a steady cam," And you're like, uh, it's, it's so hard. Steadicam, gimbal, all that stuff is perfect for that, like, I'm running behind a person and we're running upstairs. Momentum helps smooth it out. 
those really slow creeping shots, that is best done if you can on like a dolly with a geared head. However, uh, it doesn't seem like you have the budget for like a Fisher dolly and an airy gearhead or something. So there are ways to do slow creeping moves on a lower budget by renting something like a doorway dolly and then finding a way to mount your stabilizer to it. So the combination of the doorway dolly providing like a real bedrock and then most stabilizers have a quarter 20 mount of some sort or some sort of clamp mount so that you can use a combination of the two so you can get those real slow creeping moves but you're not supporting the weight yourself. Because if you hold a Ronin M for three minutes continuously, I don't care how light the camera is. The A7S II is really light, although its lenses are kind of heavy. You're going to end up shaking. And that shake is eventually going to affect your framing. So some combination of like a doorway dolly, maybe you throw like a really cheap jimmy jib on it, and then you mount the stabilizer to the jimmy jib. So the stabilizer gets rid of any shakes in the jib. And then you can choreograph these really long, slow, delicate shots. If you can bump up to a Fisher or Chapman, you totally should. They're worth it. But if you're especially in a location that's like hard to get to, it can be hard to get a Fisher up three flights of stairs. People do it, but it's tough. Um, sandbags are also great. I can't tell you the number of jobs I've done where we have like a doorway dolly, which fits in most trunks, and it's like a $25, $50 a day rental. And then you literally just put like 300 pounds of sandbags on it so that it's maybe not 300, maybe 100 pounds of sandbags. Um so that it, it's weighted down and it's more stable and it's more repeatable. If you can put it on track, you put it on track. And then you can move it around back and forth. And the combination of that and the Ronin M, I think you're going to get close, especially if you can get like a two-foot or a three-foot jib on there, that, again, you weight that stand down as well. So the jib can give you a little float. The Ronin can give you a little stabilization. I think you could be in a good place for not very much. So good luck, Mr. Dudek and Joe G. Get in touch. We yeah, I mean I did a ton of those kinds of shots on my short because like we were going for a real like carpenter esque sort of thing where, you know, he like establishes his locations by having these really intense slow dollies in. Um and we just use a Dana dolly. Yeah. Um and that worked fine. I mean, a lot of the times I mean, obviously we had a much heavier camera. We were yeah. using the Alexa Classic. But another little tip is uh you know, don't be afraid to cheat in terms of like, uh, it doesn't have to be a push in. Like a lot of times, it's actually easier to to pull out and then. Oh, uh, so much. Yeah, <laughs> easier to pull out. Uh, a lot of times, it's like easier to pull out. John has a strong pull out game. Yes, I <laughs> I love the pull out method. Uh, big advocate. And then you can just uh, flip it in post, and uh, it actually ends up being a lot smoother a lot of the time. Um, so just keep rolling, basically. Like, do five or six moves back and forth when you have that shot, and then you can go to the edit room with uh, a bunch of takes to choose the smoothest one. Another trick that somebody else turned me on to is slow-mo. Slow-mo can hide a lot of bumps and grinds. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work for every shot, depending upon how your performer is working and what you're doing. But a little slow-mo can also add a little float to something. Yeah, I'm trying to remember if we used half speed for any of those, but I'm not sure if we did. But that's a good idea, too. Yeah. Although, if it's a music video, make sure the band rehearses. Because I can't tell you the number of times I've been on music video shoots where we're like, and now we're going to do slow-mo. And slow-mo means the band has to sing faster to keep up because yeah. it's going to get slowed down. And they have to rehearse that. Yeah. You can't just magically start singing your song at two times speed. It doesn't work. So if you're going to do slow-mo and you're working with a band, give them heads up like a week in advance and prep the files so they can practice because that's hard. Yeah, good luck. Thanks, Charles.
Thank you, John. Good luck pulling out, everybody. <laughs> God. And now on some movie openings. On VOD, you can check out Are We Not Cats? This is Xander Robbins' debut feature. And as our writer Genevieve Jacobson says, Robbins' capacity to embrace the strangest parts of himself and his willingness to make them visible on screen is what makes his feature debut, Are We Not Cats, unmissable. Haplessly reckless and unashamedly filthy, Eli, who's played by Michael Patrick Nicholson, plows onward through an existential tailspin of which he is not yet aware, allowing the breadcrumb generosity of his man-child friends, the maniacal insanity of a bro-drinking antifreeze, and the kindness of weird dads to carry him merrily along into the backwoods of New York, where he finds comfort in sinister vulnerability, something we can all identify with, right? You can read Genevieve's whole interview with the director on the site. That sounds... Not your typical film. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) And coming to Netflix on Friday, March 16th is Take Your Pills. Which you might have to do before you watch Are We Not Cats. There's a couple of Netflix original (laughs) movies that are premiering the same day as they premiere out at South by Southwest next week. So I thought I'd get them on your radar so that you can have a little mini Austin fest of your own. The first of which is this documentary called Take Your Pills, which I believe Eric is excited for. Uh, The film explores our society's increasing reliance on, you guessed it, pills. And we're talking about stuff like Adderall, Ritalin, and Provigil. Is that how you say that? Do you guys know? Do you guys take these pills? Provigil? Provigil? Never heard of it. But these, of course, were all drugs that were kind of made for ADD kids, and uh, they've transitioned into something else entirely. They're prescription stimulants that are in college classrooms, on Wall Street, in Silicon Valley, startup company boardrooms, any place where the need to succeed exists in sort of a short time frame. It focuses on the history, facts, and the pervasiveness of cognitive enhancement drugs. It's directed by award-winning documentarian Allison Clayman, who recently released Ai Weiwei, Never Sorry. The second film to look out for, which also has a March 16th release date, is Jody Hill's new flick, The Legacy of a White-Tailed Deer Hunter. Hopefully, I'll be seeing this one and interviewing Jody Hill while we're down there. But he's, of course, known for his wickedly dark comedies that border on the super messed up side of things. He's perhaps best known for his HBO shows Eastbound and Down and Vice Principals. And this is actually only the third feature film of his long career. It's his first since 2009's Observe and Report. The adventure comedy follows Buck Ferguson, who's played by Josh Brolin, famous for hunting white-tailed deer, as he plans a special episode of his hunting show around a bonding weekend with his estranged son, Jaden. Frequent collaborator Danny McBride also stars in the movie. And in theaters this Friday is Thoroughbreds, which was one of Sundance's best from 2017 and finally hitting theaters a year later. Uh, It was notably one of Emily's favorites from last year. She described it as Heather's meets Cruel Intentions meets The Shining by way of Equus. I mean, there is a horse. There are are two women who have cruel, evil intentions. And The Shining, I mean, you know... um there may be a bear. Uh, the film stars a pair of today's most gifted young female actors in the severely underrated Olivia Cook, who's actually going to have a hell of a march with uh, Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One opening in a few weeks, and the witch's Anya Taylor-Joy. It also marks what may be Anton Yelchin's final posthumous appearance in a film. The, de- the film is dedicated to him. Uh, this is writer-director Corey Finley's first ever film, and it's actually based on a play of his. He has a playwriting background, uh, which honestly seems like a really strong place for a director to start. I'll take this one. Yes. I used to be a playwright, and I'll say it is. It is a very – oh, my God. You know, I didn't see Arthur Miller making any films, you know? Well, that's because he was a – Fucking loser. You know, I mean, Martin McDonough seems to be doing it. Right. Martin McDonough is doing it. Um, 
I mean, Neil John Simon Fusco. wrote some screenplays, but he never directed. Sam Shepard. Sam Shepard had a good run. We'll see how it pans out. Oh, Wait, you already saw how it pans out. Uh, it, it was, you know, John Patrick Shanley. Got to give it up for John Patrick Shanley. David Mamet. It depends on who you ask. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> but yeah. So Corey Finley, maybe he's on that that path. Uh, the film follows two upper class teenage girls in suburban Connecticut who hatch a plan to solve both of their problems, no matter what the cost. Uh, one has an evil stepdad. And maybe they're going to hire someone to carry out a murder. Maybe they won't. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it doesn't work. Uh, You can read Emily's full interview with Finley on the site, uh, which we will link to in this post. Fun fact, when this film premiered at Sundance, it was called Thoroughbred. And Emily's original interview was with the director of Thoroughbred. Now, I had to go in and manually change every mention of the movie in that article to Thoroughbreds because for some strange reason... Between the Sundance release and the theatrical release, they added an S at the end. And Eric and I poked around all yeah. over the internet, couldn't really find an answer to why. I'm wondering, was the original a reference to the horse and is Thoroughbreds a reference to the two female leads? Just throwing it out there, I don't actually know this. And now moving on to grant and opportunity deadlines. The Film Independent Producing Lab and Sloan Producers Grant have a deadline on March 12th. Are you a producer with feature-length narrative in active development or pre-production? If you are interested in getting your project off the ground, not to mention gaining eligibility for a $30,000 Sloan Producers Grant, you should definitely check this grant out. The Producing Lab helps to further the careers of its fellows by introducing them to film professionals who can advise them on both the craft and business of independent producing. In addition to attending class sessions with guest speakers from films, legal, financial, and production arenas, each producing fellow will be paired with an experienced creative advisor with whom they'll work in class and one-on-one to further develop their project over the course of the program. Film Independence Fast Track also has a deadline on March 12th. If you're a directing and producing team with a full-length narrative or doc film seeking financing, the L.A. Fast Track market could be a great place to find it. Fast Track is a three-day film financing market held during the L.A. Film Festival and designed to help these teams, quote, fast-track their projects forward through 60 meetings with top execs, financiers, agents, etc. And during the three days of these meetings, you get valuable exposure and build vital relationships that can help get your films made. Sounds like a great opportunity. And March 15th is the deadline for the Sundance Episodic Story Lab. Uh, For this lab, Sundance Institute will choose writers slash filmmakers with an original episodic pilot for a six-day fellowship. Uh, It is a six-day program at the Sundance Resort in Utah that offers writers the opportunity to workshop an original pilot script while developing their writing and pitching skills. Working with accomplished showrunners, non-writing creative producers, and executives, the fellows participate in one-on-one story meetings, pitching sessions, and simulated writers' rooms. It's pretty interesting, which together provide creative and strategic keys to success. And now moving on to festival deadlines. The Sidewalk Film Festival has a deadline on March 15th. This is the late deadline. It takes place August 20th to the 26th, 2018 in Birmingham, Alabama. It's been repeatedly recognized by Movie Maker Magazine as one of the top 25 festivals in the world and by Time Magazine as one of the top 10 festivals for the rest of us. There what are, does that mean? It's like <laughs> Festivus. There are multiple cash prizes of up to $1,000. In addition to cash prizes, winners are offered travel assistance and table read opportunities during the festival weekend. And the New Orleans Film Festival has a deadline on March 16th. This takes place in New Orleans from October 17th to the 25th. It is one of the few film festivals that is Oscar qualifying in all three Academy accredited categories, narrative short, documentary short, and animated short. And it's been recognized, of course, by Movie Maker as one of the top 50 film festivals every year since 2012. 
In a departure from our normal weekly words of wisdom, I want to share a clip from Dee Reese's acceptance speech for her Mudbound win at the Spirit Awards because it was one of the best I've ever heard. It just celebrates the magic of movies with a veiled reference to her film being released on Netflix and not theatrically and the importance of every role on set. Here are two short clips, but I encourage you to Google it and listen to the whole electrifying seven minutes. I know that as independent filmmakers, as the so-called rebels, as the outsiders creating without respect to means or access, I know that we, of all makers, are far, far beyond any identity tokenism or snobbery of form in both production and distribution, because we know that cinema lies not in a strip of celluloid, a length of magnetic tape, nor across the blind plane of an image sensor. No, we know that cinema lies in absorbing, electrifying performances by committed actors that make audiences feel, that make them think, that make them observe themselves and the world around them in a more expansive way. We know that cinema lies in the thoughtful and narrative composition and choreography of subject, movement, color, and light, like Rachel Morrison's compelling sculptural, like Rachel Morrison's compelling sculptural humanistic photography that elevates reality into a visceral, highly textured symphony of feeling. Ooh, I get chills just listening to it again. Now, I don't know if you saw Nash Edgerton, yes, Joel's brother, on Conan earlier this week promoting his new film, Gringo, but as is pretty typical with the No Film School podcast, he's going straight from being Conan's guest to being ours. He'll join me on Monday's episode as part of a great indie episodics roundtable that we recorded at Sundance with creators from three of the series that were featured in their new section this year. It's really cool to hear how these three filmmakers got their series off the ground and stretched production dollars across multiple episodes. Look out for that on Monday. And meanwhile, you can read about all the opportunities that we talked about in this podcast and lots of our interviews uh, in the podcast post, as well as new exciting articles every day about the art of filmmaking at nofilmschool.com. And it means a lot to us when you subscribe and give us those nice ratings on iTunes, Uh, or wherever you listen to podcasts so that you can get these shows every Monday and Thursday. Uh, Also, please stay in touch. I'm at LizFilm on Twitter. I'm at Eric Lures, and I got a couple of tweets, so I appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much. I'm Jim underscore John underscore Jim. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, We're all at No Film School, and we will see you next Thursday. 